Last time we spoke about the two-pronged offensive against Wario and the ongoing operation on Bungayville. Kategiri's men had lost the battle for Saddleburg, and they were performing their long retreat to Medang, but the Australians were not going to let up. Wooten immediately ordered the capture of Wario, and soon the Allies were right back on the Japanese heels. Kategiri lacked manpower, supplies, and even physical strength to fight the advancing Australians off. The Australians took Bonga, Horus, the Kalung Lakes, the Christmas Hills, and Kwanko during their drive to Wario. Kategeri could do little more than order his men to continue fleeing north. 455 Japanese were killed, while the Australians suffered 47 deaths and 332 wounded. Over on Bougainville, General Geiger expanded his perimeter and launched a bold and dangerous amphibious raid against Kwari. Luckily for the raiders, the Japanese were taken by complete surprise, and the Americans were able to pull out before they were completely annihilated. This episode is The Landing at Arroway. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II, and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I released something that was exclusively on my Patreon account, a four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author of the Final War Theory. And speaking of Patreon accounts, why don't you check out my own at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where you can find more exclusive podcasts. The Allies were edging ever closer to Rabaul, as the Japanese were facing a long string of defeats in New Guinea and the Solomons. General Douglas MacArthur had elected to carry out two amphibious landings on western New Britain, in an effort to gain dominance over the Damper Strait. Codenamed Operation Dexterity, MacArthur was going to perform amphibious landings at Arroway and Cape Gloucester. Initially, Operation Lazaretto called for an amphibious landing on southern New Britain, five kilometers away from Gazmata in mid-November. This would have been done to neutralize the Japanese base at Gazmata and to protect the eastern flank for future operations. However, the Japanese anticipated the attack and rapidly built up their forces there. The 7th Fleet was not capable of hitting both Gazmata and Cape Gloucester simultaneously, so instead, Admirals Carpenter and Barbie formulated the plan to invade Arroway. That was thought not to be as heavily defended. With Arroway in the hands of the Allies, they could establish a PT boat base there with the objective to establish light naval forces to protect the southeastern flank of our forces in the impending seizure of Gloucester Peninsula. But Morton C. Muma, who commanded the motor torpedo boats in the southwest Pacific area, would have none of Arroway. He already had all the bases he could use, and the Japanese barges used mostly the northern coast of New Britain. Apparently, Morton spent days, quote, camping on the Seven Fleet's doorstep to protest against setting up a PT boat base at Arroway. 
Morton only left after he was assured by the admirals that he would not have one if he did not want it. By November the 22nd, MacArthur ditched Operation Lazaretto for Operation Director. Now, Operation Director was to land at Arroway, and it was slated for December the 15th, just 11 days prior to the landings at Cape Gloucester. Operation Director would also act as a diversion for Operation Backhander. The operation would be performed by two squadrons of the 112th Cavalry Regiment combat team. This regiment had spent its time as a National Guard patrolling the Mexican border before they were shipped off to New Caledonia in July of 1942. They were assigned to General Patch's Americal Division, and they were deployed as a horse-mounted security force on New Caledonia. General Patch initially thought horse-mounted cavalry could be used in jungle warfare, but the torrential and very muddy Pacific weather quickly changed his mind. Honestly, try to picture in your head right now guys on horses running through New Guinea or something. That would have been pretty weird. The regiment was sent to Good Enough Island for retraining and was tossed into Operation Director quite at the last minute. The regiment had not even yet seen combat and was converted to an infantry unit in late May of 1943. The new regiment consisted of two squadrons. The first squadron consisted of A, B, and C troops, and the second squadron D, E, and F troops. For combat support, there was the M2A1 howitzer-equipped 148th Field Artillery Battalion and the 59th Engineer Company. The other combat units of the Director Task Force were two batteries of the 470th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion, most of the 236th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion, a company of the United States Marine Corps 1st Amphibious Tractor Battalion, and a detachment from the 26th Quartermaster War Dog Platoon. The 2nd Battalion of the 158th Infantry Regiment was held in reserve to reinforce the Director Task Force if required. Not only was the 112th Regiment's attachment to the operation rushed, its planning was as well. The Allies lacked good aerial photographs, and the troops would only have 10 days to practice amphibious warfare at Good Enough Island. After this, the regiment would be embarking aboard the LCD Greater Hall, the LCI HMS Westralia, and two APDs Humphreys and Sands, which would be departing on December the 13th. A and B of the 1st Squadron would also have additional missions. A would land at Omtagalu, and B would land at Pilelo Island. They were going to hit the beaches in rubber boats from the APDs, while the main force would be hitting their beaches in LVTs. These are going to be 10 buffaloes and 29 alligators. For those of you wondering, the Buffalo LVT was much more heavily armed with 37mm turrets, the same that are on Stuart tanks and the howitzer motor carriages. The Alligator LVT were designed to operate in swampy areas, and they were less armed. The LVTs would be hitting the western shore at a place called Cape Mercus. The original plan was devised by General Kruger's Alamo Force, and a call for the 7th Marines to land east of the Tsurubu Airdrome the 2nd Battalion's 1st Marines west of it, and the 503rd Parachute Battalion to land in a large patch of kunai grass southeast of it. The three units would work to converge on the aerodrome altogether. The plan was heavily criticized by General Kenny and Major General Rupertus. When they looked over the operational maps, it seemed to them the planners had completely overlooked the mountains, swamps, and jungle terrain. The Marines were expected to drive through the jungle to link up with paratroopers, and that did not sit at all well with the air commanders. 
The Marines hated the plan because the converging of three forces over some very rough terrain against a more than likely larger enemy would undoubtedly have a lot of problems. There was also the issue of telling friend from foe. In early December, General Kenny added his voice to the criticism on behalf of the Air Forces. Kenny argued the plan intended to use piecemeal paratroops instead of performing a mass drop. The piecemeal drops would require innumerable flights of troop carriers, and all these flights would require approaching the enemy airspace dangerously close. In conclusion, he said, Commander, Allied Air Forces does not desire to participate in the planned employment of paratroops for dexterity. On December the 14th, Colonel Edwin Pollock bluntly voiced his opposition to the plan to MacArthur, who apparently walked out of the meeting quite pissed off. It is difficult to know why an invasion of the southern area was believed to be necessary. It is most likely because the Navy wanted a PT boat base at Gasmata to better operate against the IGN barge traffic. However, Captain Morton Mama's declaration of not needing a base as long as Cape Gloucester was secured made the decision to hit Arroway final. General Kenny also found the Lindhaven plantation at Gasmata unsuitable for an airfield. To twist MacArthur's arm somewhat, an intelligence report indicated Arroway was only defended by 500 men or so, these being of the 115th Infantry of the IJ 51st Division. MacArthur was much more worried over Operation Backhander, so he simply agreed at the time. The use of paratroopers for Operation Backhander was eliminated, and instead they would concentrate strength for a potentially decisive stroke rather than a dispersal of forces. The 1st Marines would land immediately behind the 7th Marines to hit the aerodrome. Furthermore, the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines would make a secondary landing on the western shore of New Britain in order to block the Japanese from reinforcing the aerodrome and to cut off the retreat of its garrison. After all was said and done, the planning had been finalized just 11 days prior to the landing date. It was quite a last-minute ordeal. Given Backhander was a success, MacArthur also sought to hit Sador on the northeastern coast of New Guinea, hopefully by the start of the new year. This would effectively cut off General Adachi's 18th Army from retreating. Thus, on December the 10th, MacArthur ordered General Kruger to begin preparations for Operation Michaelmas, with the 32nd Division earmarked for the task. Now over on the Japanese side, General Imamura deployed General Sakai's 17th Division in western New Britain, with their command center being at Kufuvu. Units already in the region consisted of the Matsuda Detachment and the 2nd Battalion 228th Regiment, both of whom would now be under Sakai's command. The original mission of General Matsuda's 65th Mixed Brigade had been maintaining the supply line to New Guinea. Thus, his unit was quite top-heavy with transportation personnel alongside an assortment of orphan units that had become separated from their parent units on New Guinea. Matsuda's HQ was near Kalingi. His 4th shipping detachment were located between Tsurubu and Natomo, and his 65th Engineer Regiment was at Tsurubu. Matsuda concentrated the majority of his strength along the south and west coasts at places like Cape Bushing, Aisaga, Nigol, Arawe, and Cape Mercus. At Telavu, the name the Japanese used for Cape Gloucester, the detachment had been relieved by Colonel Sumiya Koki's 53rd Regiment in early November, successfully establishing defensive positions between Mount Talaway and Borken Bay. Colonel Sumiya had prepared several small roadblocks to cover his eastward approaches, 
while placing the bulk of his troops and weapons in and around two main strongpoints. The first point was the crescent-shaped Borgen Bay, around 1,000 yards east of the airdrome. Over there, he had an elaborate system of mutually supporting bunkers with mounting weapons up to 75mm guns, connected by a network of rifle trenches. The second point was the broken foothills of Mount Talloway, dominating the flat grounds for several hundreds of yards to the south. Further south was Colonel Katayama Kenshiro's 141st Regiment, who were defending Cape Bushing. Colonel Jiro Saito's 51st Reconnaissance Regiment was defending Rook Island. A very understrength provisional company was defending Cape Mercus, and the 3rd Battalion of the 141st were defending Nigol alongside a few orphan units of the 51st Division. General Sakai dispatched Colonel Hiroshima Shue's 54th Regiment. They were sent to reinforce Gazmata, and their 7th Company would detach to form a garrison at Talasei. In early December, Major Komori Shinjiro's understrength 1st Battalion 81st Regiment landed at Iboki. Sakai was concerned with the safety of Cape Mercus and their garrison, so he sent Komori's detachment to proceed to Araway urgently. Komori's men would have to traverse an extremely difficult trail that saw them going through jungles, swamps, mountains, and rivers over the entire width of the island. Now back over with the Allies, Generals Cunningham's convoy rendezvous with Admiral Barbie's escorting force at Buna on December the 14th. From there they would head for Araway after dusk also accompanied by Admiral Crutchley's supporting force. On that same day, Kenny's 5th Air Force performed bombing campaigns, dropping some 433 tons of bombs against Araway. At 3.30 a.m. on the 15th, Barbie's convoy reached the transport area and prepared their assault. To get the vulnerable rubber boats ashore, General Cunningham had to rely on the element of surprise rather than strength. So he chose to land under the cover of darkness with no forewarning, According to Barbie, Although it was considered that the moonlight might prevent surprise, the landing force commander desired to attempt it without any preliminary bombardment. Unfortunately, an American party of amphibious scouts had landed on that beach back on the 10th, causing the Japanese to suspect another landing might soon take place. There would be machine guns ready to hit the boys. At 5.05 a.m., Humphreys launched 15 rubber boats for Palolo Island, while Sands launched 15 others for Imtangulu. The landing at Palolo went off without a hitch. Troop B landed and immediately attacked a Japanese radio station near the village of Paligmet. Troop A came under attack from a small group of Japanese hiding in some nearby caves. One American and seven Japanese would die in this fighting. But the landing at Emtagalu was another story entirely. The Japanese defenders unleashed heavy and falling machine gun fire upon the incoming rubber boats. Twelve out of the fifteen were punctured and sank very quickly. Most of the men swam for their lives seaward and they were rescued by small boats later on near House Fireman Beach. Around twelve men would die. Four went missing and seventeen were pretty badly wounded. The submarine chaser CSC-99 would manage to rescue 71 of the men from the water while under heavy fire. Between 6.10 and 6.25 a.m., Allied destroyers bombarded the beach with 1,805-inch shells, and B-25 Mitchells made a bombing pass around House Fireman Beach. The main landing force approached the area on amphibious tractors facing slight opposition, but they easily silenced them using rockets. 
The first wave consisted of 10 LVT-2 buffaloes that hit the beach in a very chaotic fashion, at around 7.28 a.m. The other waves of LVT-1 alligators kept stalling, and this caused the landing force to be strung out in columns for a couple of miles or so. But once ashore, the cavalrymen stormed Arawa's peninsula base. The two understrength Japanese companies there had little hope against them, and they withdrew quickly, going northeast towards Dipmop along the Puli River. At 8 a.m., more troops aboard General Heavy's LCVPs and LCMs came over with the first echelon of supplies. This time, however, Japanese aircraft had spotted the convoys coming to our way at 4 a.m. Admiral Kuzaka dispatched a strike force of 8 VALs and 56 Zeros to try and break the landings. 16 P-38s intercepted the strike force, but many got through. Barbie's ship Cunningham and the supply ships managed to evade the bombs. By the end of the day, 1,904 troops had been landed, and a new base was being constructed. Over the next following days, naval convoys would bring over reinforcements to the Arawa area. The Japanese launched multiple attacks upon them, resulting in the sinking of APC-21 and APC-12. Subchaser CS-743, Minesweeper YMS-50, and four LVTs were all heavily damaged. Despite the damage, 6,287 tons of supplies and 451 guns and vehicles were landed at Arawa within three weeks. A defensive perimeter was established behind the main line of resistance as General Cunningham's men began sending patrols towards the Puli and Itni rivers to establish outposts. General Matsuda now realized he was facing a full-blown invasion. He dispatched Major Tobuse Asayaki's 1st Battalion, 141st Regiment, while awaiting further reinforcements from the Komori Detachment. There were no trails connecting the Itni and Arawe regions, however. Thus, the men were forced to travel by landing craft from Cape Bushing over to the Amoy Point a few miles west of the Arawe landings. From there, they would need to travel overland to join up with Major Komori. Yet, that is all for the Arawe operation for today, as we now need to travel back over to Bougainville. The last time we were speaking about Bougainville, the raid against Koari had been quite a blunder. Meanwhile, the Amtraks were busy cutting trails through the jungles and swamps to help the general advance. A small unit from the 21st Marines occupied Hill 600, back on November the 27th. Then on December the 3rd, an intense artillery duel began as the Japanese unleashed 150mm guns upon the forward slopes of Hill 600. This forced the Americans to pull back. On December the 5th, the general advance kicked off. Colonel Robert Williams' paratroopers occupied a line stretching from the crest of Hill 1000, going across a series of ridges and ravines towards the junction of the East-West Trail and to the Torokina River. Now this line would begin to expand 3,000 yards over a ridge named Helzapoppin Ridge. The Marines named it after the musical, because of its extremely difficult terrain. The 3rd Marines captured Hill 500 with zero opposition. The American supply lines had been extended as well. Now there was a growing supply dump called Evansville, established in the rear of Hill 600 to provide supply to the final defensive line. December the 6th saw a severe earthquake hindering any advance. Commander of the 9th Marines, Fraser West, recalled, Being raised in Nevada, I'd been through a lot of earthquakes, so they were nothing new to me. We had one really severe earthquake on Bougainville. The big trees were just swaying around. We had built this fortification on this ridge, pillboxes and such out of coconut logs, and the roofs fell in on the pillboxes, and some of the trenches caved in as well. The men got down and hugged to the ground. 
it was impossible to stand up while it was going on. They were scared to death when the huge trees were breaking down around them. This went on for what it seemed like uh, several minutes. Then the ground really rumbled and shook. It was the worst earthquake I'd ever been in. On December the 7th, Williams led a patrol east towards a 300-yard long spur being defended by the 23rd Regiment in well-dug-in positions. William twice attempted seizing the spur, and he was wounded alongside seven of his men, who had to retire back to the Marine lines. On the 9th, three other patrols hit the spur again, but were likewise driven off. During the last afternoon of the 9th, the Japanese launched a counterattack against the Marine position on Hill 1000. The paratroopers, with the support of some 105mm and 75mm howitzers, managed to repel the attack, which cost them 12 deaths and 26 wounded. The next day, General Geiger decided to relieve Williams with the 1st Battalion 21st Marines and the 1st Battalion 9th Marines. At first, the Marines tried to neutralize the Japanese with artillery fire, but the reverse slopes on places like Hill 1000 made it very difficult for the guns to hit their positions. On the 13th, Geiger requested aerial bombardments and received three dive bombers and three torpedo bombers, who hit the targets causing some damage, but they also hit a Marine position killing two men and wounding another five. The next day saw 17 torpedo bombers hit the ridge, and the following day another 18 torpedo bombers, who managed to land some direct hits on the Japanese positions. On the 18th, 11 torpedo bombers loaded with 100-pound bombs with delay fuses managed to pin the enemy down, while 155mm howitzers cleared much of the dense vegetation, covering the crest of the ridge. Immediately after the airstrike, the Marines stormed the ridge from Hill 1000 in a double envelopment finding little resistance by the day's survivors. The artillery and aerial bombardments had been so heavy, most of the Japanese companies were forced to retreat, leaving 50 corpses over Helsipapen Ridge. Helsipapen Ridge cost the Marines 12 deaths and 23 wounded in the end. Meanwhile, on the 21st, a patrol of the 21st Marines encountered a few Japanese upon Hill 600A. One platoon ran into some heavy fire from the Japanese, requiring Company I to perform a double envelopment but they were likewise pinned down. On the 23rd, Company K, reinforced with a heavy machine gun platoon, attempted a direct assault against Hill 600A, but they were also driven back. The Marines poured more artillery fire upon Hill 600A and tossed more attacks, but still they were driven off, and with heavy casualties. Then on the morning of the 24th, scouts discovered the Japanese were inexplicably abandoning the position, and they began slipping away during the night. Hill 600A was to be the last offensive by the Marines on Bungayville. The Army boys were soon to take over. Geiger relinquished command to General Griswold's 14th Corps on the 15th, and now the American Division would be advancing upon to relieve the 3rd Marine Division. The Army boys would be taking control of the inland perimeter, extending 23,000 yards. Over 50,000 troops would be working to expand that perimeter. And yet, that is all for Bougainville, as now we're going to be covering some events in India and Burma. As a result of the August-Quebec conference codenamed Quadrant, the Allies created the combined Southeast Asian Command. This new command would have Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten as Supreme Allied Commander, and General Joseph Stilwell as Deputy Supreme Commander. They would hold overall strategic command of all air, sea, and land operations for all the national contingents in the theater. Our old, onion-eating, maniac friend Wingate had also returned from the Quebec Conference with the mission of expanding the strength of the Chindits. 
However, Wingate refused to use Indian Army formations in his force, because he maintained that their training in long-range penetration would take longer, and their maintenance by air would be more difficult due to the varied dietary requirements of different Gurkha and Indian castes and religions. He couldn't get his way, and he was forced to accept the 111th Brigade and two Gurkha battalions of the 77th Brigade. Again, this seems to be another point of evidence Wingate really did not like Gurkha units. So Wingate now had the 77th Indian Brigade, led by Brigadier Mike Calvert, and the 111th Indian Brigade, led by Brigadier Joe Latagny. Which I'm probably not saying right because I'm saying it in the French way, I am not sure how an American would say that last name. To increase the number of Chindits, the 14th, 16th, and 23rd British Brigades would be added, breaking up the experienced 70th British Division, much to the misery of General Slim. The 3rd West Africa Brigade was also snatched up from the 81st West Africa Division. Through the Quebec Conference, Wingate also managed to obtain a private air force for the Chindits, designated the 1st Air Commando Group, consisting mostly of American aircraft. The new Chindit force became officially known as the 3rd Indian Division, though it would usually be referred to as the Special Force, or Chindits, or Long Range Penetration Group. The new recruits were tossed into the rigorous training of crossing rivers, demolitions, and some bivouacking at Guelar. Calvert and Ferguson had both been promoted to brigadier, and they took command of two brigades. Both men were responsible for a lot of the training program and the development of tactical planning while Wingate was promoted to major general. Inspired by Wingate's onion force, the Allied leaders during the Quebec Conference decided to create an American deep penetration unit that would also harass the Japanese in Burma. On September the 18th of 1943, a new American long-range penetration force was announced to be created, and it would be an all-volunteer unit. It received 960 jungle-trained officers and men from the Caribbean Defense Command, 970 from the Army Ground Forces, and 674 battle-tested jungle troops from the South Pacific Command, these boys being veterans of Guadalcanal and the Solomon's Campaign. General MacArthur handed over 274 Army combat-experienced volunteers from the Southwest Pacific area as well, veterans of New Guinea and Bougainville. These 3,000 men were now the 5,307th Composite Unit, formed under the codenamed Galahad Project. The unit arrived at Bombay on October the 31st, where they were equipped and began training under the direction of Wingate at Delali. Colonels Francis Brink and Charles Hunter trained the men from November to January of 1944. Then, the 5,307th moved to Dugras, where they received additional training in scouting, patrolling, steam crossing, weaponry, navigation, demolition, camouflage, guerrilla-style warfare, and the novel technique of airdrop supplying. In the meantime, Stilwell was in China, so the command of the operation fell to Brigadier General Hayden Boatner, who was the commanding general of the Lido sector and the chief of staff for the China Army in India. Stilwell had been planning an offensive codenamed Albacore while the Lido Road was being constructed. To exercise his command, Stivell had his small staff of American officer advisors each grab a Chinese division. They kept in touch via radio teams, who spoke both American and Mandarin. However, these American officers did not have any real authority of command. They were merely acting through the use of persuasion. Operation Albacore was an offensive aimed at protecting the Lido base and securing the Xingbawingyang area. General Sun Li Jen's 38th Division was given the task of capturing the line at Turunkia, then later to join with Lieutenant General 
Liaoyangxiang's 22nd Division to hit the Jambubam Ridge Line. Afterwards, they would proceed towards Mikinya in December. Still will assume the Japanese were not particularly strong north of the Kamaing, and would not be able to reinforce the Mikinya Paoshan area. But in fact, the Japanese Burma Area Army had received a large amount of reinforcements in the area. Anxious to prevent any interference with their ongoing offensive, the Japanese Burma HQ had dispatched reinforcements all around the Burma perimeter. In October of 1943, the 56th Division had eliminated a Chinese bridgehead over the Salouin, north of Tongcheng. In late September, the 18th Division set up positions in the Hukawing Valley, and some elements of the 56th Division had taken up a position at Mianquan. On October the 24th, General Su Li Jin had the 112th Regiment advance further to shield the Lido roadbuilders, while the 2nd Battalion advanced to Sharaga and Yigmian. Defending Shaoga was the 5th Company, 56th Regiment, with one platoon securing Yigbian. The 1st Battalion attacked Xingbuiyang before advancing upon Yubbanga. The 2nd Battalion, 56th Regiment, stationed at Mainquan, upon receiving word of the Allied offensive, began moving towards Yubbangua. The 3rd Battalion advanced from Huklakha towards Negachitsup in the northern edge of the Tarao Plain. Due to supply difficulties, the 3rd Battalion were making very little progress. These Chinese forces were marching over portions of the trail that the defeated army and refugees had used in 1942 to flee Burma from the Japanese. The paths were a horrifying sight. Skeletons were found around every waterhole. Groups of bones were found en masse. Dr. Gordon Seagrave, a surgeon moving with the troops, recalled seeing, quote, Hundreds and hundreds of skeletons. The Chinese would encounter unexpected, well-led, and well-entrenched resistance at all of their objectives. Defending Sharaga was the 5th Company 56th Regiment, with one platoon securing Ningbing Yen. Two miles north of Sharaga, the Chinese ran into an outpost which they quickly dislodged. However, when they attacked the village, which lay between the two hills, the Japanese fired down upon them from said hills, causing 116 casualties. From November the 1st to the 3rd, the Japanese inflicted 50 deaths upon the Chinese attackers, receiving no casualties upon themselves in return. The 1st Battalion had a similar experience at Yupanga. There they ran into a well-entrenched and well-led force who created roadblocks between Sharaga and Yen, isolating them. Major Chen's 3rd Battalion, while trying to clear the Taro Plain, was also being hampered by logistics. By November the 1st, he had only arrived to Nagajatsup on the extreme northern edge of the plain. When notified, Stillwell commented, Sorry performance. Arrived about November the 1st. Sent one company forward. Pulled it back again. Thereafter did nothing. Major Chen cowered in dugout. Terrific waste of ammunition. Told Sun to have him move or I would shoot or court-martial Major Chun. Sun sent to investigate. Chun killed by British grenade in his dugout on December the 27th. The Japanese resistance ground the offensive to a halt as the Chinese forces were forced to dig in. At Yubanga, in particular, the Japanese had cut off the Chinese from the river crossing and began encirclement maneuvers. The Chinese relying on air supply were powerless to cut their way out. In response to the Chinese offensive, Lieutenant General Tanaka Shinichi 
shifted the main strength of the 18th Division to the Xingbuyang area, hoping to assemble there by the 15th of December. As the Japanese presence grew in the area, so did the casualties upon the Chinese forces. The 112th Regiment had one of its companies completely annihilated on the 2nd of November. The regimental command post was overrun on the 3rd, as their guards were digging in for the night. The regimental commander, Colonel Chen, and the junior U.S. liaison officer, Major General Laglin, managed to escape, but Chief Liaison Officer Lieutenant Colonel Douglas Gilbert was captured by the enemy. A company of the 114th rushed to aid the situation, but they were halted by the Japanese just before reaching Yabanga. In late November, the situation for the 112th began to improve somewhat when the 114th Regiment reinforced them. However, when they began attacking Yabanga, their artillery batteries were driven away by four Japanese machine gun positions. More attempts were made in December, but the Japanese were simply outperforming them. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, if you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released what was an exclusive podcast series on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mokuden incident and the author of The Final War Theory. And speaking of Patreons, if you want, you can go check out mine at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. The landings at Arroway was yet again another successful Allied amphibious operation, but most assuredly, it would soon be met with the typical Japanese counterattack. The Bougainville operation was now under new management, and the situation in Burma was starting to heat up again. <laughs>